Blog Talk Radio. This is all about wine on Blog Talk Radio, the talk show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009, featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Basically what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that. Share your question or comments using the live chat feature on our website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Again, that's www.allaboutwinebtr.com. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. Thank you. Thank you. That's right. Hey, thank you. They're happy. Beautiful weather. They're supposed to have a storm go through tomorrow, but they are happy tonight. Drinking wine out in the nice south side and and all that mm-hmm. tonight. Thank you, most people. Uh, I wonder if they're uh, drinking uh, biodynamic wine. Hmm. I don't know, but I know I am. <laughs> <laughs> Nice segue there. Uh, well. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> maybe they should. Uh, well, you know, the thing is, we don't furnish the bus people with wine because, well, you know, it can get rather expensive. Uh, we did it once, and now, oh my gosh, it was just like, you know, more wine. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Terrible. And so, yeah, don't so stop that. Uh, yeah, I'm drinking, drinking a little bit of natural. Uh, our biodynamic organic wine tonight. Public supermarkets located locally in the southeastern United States. I don't know how many stores they have, but uh, most people know of Publix. They uh, have a, a two-for-one, buy one, get one, a lot. This week, just started today, they have a two-for-one on wine uh, called Natura, N-A-T-U-R-A, Natura. Uh, Pinot Noir, they also, it's for their Chardonnay. And it said in the ad, organic and biodynamic. And I thought, cool. So I finally found it. it was on the bottom shelf. I thought it was hard to find. It wasn't where the Pinot Noirs were, but I did find it. And I picked up a bottle. And that's what I'm having right now, a Nutra Pinot Noir, 2018 vintage. And it says on the, on the bottle itself, Pinot Noir, Made with organic grapes, 2018, sustainably farmed in Chile. Harnessing the pure energy of nature for exceptional wines. And then it also says Emiliana Organic Vineyards. And on the back, Pinot Noir from Chile, premium and pure. It's that simple. Nutura wines are made from the purest grapes nature can provide and with the utmost respect for the environment so you can feel good about sharing and enjoying. See, they don't say anything about biodynamic. It, it, it is here, though. It says, because we are, and then they have the emblems for biodynamic, for organic, for socially responsible, and for vegan-friendly. So all the emblems are on there. 
of of courses vegan. I don't unless they. I'm, sh- I'm surprised they don't say uh, what um, pre. Uh, oh, I got a blank here. Um, but they uh, everything's on here. It's imported out of New York, out of New York, and it is uh, certified organic by Eckerstert S.A., uh, whatever company that is. But I looked it up, and it says on their website, Nutura, if you want to check it out, Nutura Wines, N-A-T-U-R-A, NuturaWines.com. And it says, what does organic really mean anyway? On the website, you click on that, and it answers the question without saying anything about organic or about uh, biodynamic, which they've got the same emblem here that it is biodynamic, but they don't mention it. And I, I tend to think because people don't understand it. That's why they don't do it. People understand organic because everything's now organic. I And as a little aside here, uh, while I was at Publix, my wife picked up some some spices and I noticed every spice bottle says organic on it. And I thought, well, I suppose they are, aren't they? Every spice bottle is organic. Every spice you buy is organic. But uh, but uh, quite simply, neutral na- uh, natural wine is all about purity, and nature comes to mind with uh, what they put into the earth and how we care for our vineyards and the grapes you get back. Therefore, they are the cleanest, the purest expression of what Chilean terror can offer. The object is produce healthier foods without the presence of chemical products. Uh, this is, it also aims to reserve the problems generated by conventional agriculture, such as soil degradation, des- desertification, pollution, and contamination. The loss of genetic diversity and the presence of toxic residues in the harvest, just to mention a few. Each of her vineyards show a reflection of organic practices based on two specific concepts. The development of biodiversity and the absence of agrochemicals. Yeah, and, and again, nothing of the closest they get to the word uh, being. Uh, let's see, here's uh, the wines. Yeah, it just tells about. But again, even with the wines themselves, they don't go into anything about uh, being biodynamic. So that's funny. That, I, I just it, it catches me as odd that they do that. They do have quite a line, though. They have uh, they have a Cabernet Sauvignon, a Merlot, a Carmenere, Chardonnay, unoaked Pinot Noir, which I'm enjoying tonight, Malbec, and a Sauvignon Blanc. These are all the wines of Nutura. But they are biodynamic and they are also organic. And uh, nothing on the label except for one little emblem. emblem. If you know the emblem for biodynamic, you can see it there. It's a little circle with uh, three 
leaf planting and little hands at the bottom of the circle. So, and the question always is, is it better? And Mike asked me that. Well, we were talking about before the show, is it better? And I don't know. I don't have anything to compare it to, so I have to say it's good. It's light. Uh, Pinot Noirs tend to be light. This seems to be a little bit lighter than Pinot Noir. It doesn't have much tannins at all. Nice flavors, nice aromas, and nice fruitiness in it. But it's it's a nice Pinot Noir. But uh, is it better because it's biodynamic or better because it's organic? I, I don't know. Uh, what we've read, what I've read to you, yeah, it's so much better because it is biodynamic. But no, I don't. I don't know. I, I just I'm still still unconvinced that just because it's biodynamic it is that much better. So uh they have uh, a whole section on what is Nutura and, and tells about all the uh different articles and stuff about that. Maybe there's something in there about biodynamic. I don't know if there is or not. It could be. Uh, they have a whole section on locator where you can find them. Uh, you put in your zip code and it pops it out from all over the United States. They have uh, uh, about Meet the Winemaker and the Rydos and who they are and all that. So interesting website, quite a good website. Again, I didn't see anything about biodynamic listed anywhere in the website about Nutria Wines. They do have a host uh, link here on Nutria Gallery from Emiliana Winery in Chile, which is their vineyard where they get everything. And the vineyard pictures do show uh, alpacas roaming around in the vineyard. They do show a picture of a chicken and they have pictures of horses in the vineyard. So maybe this is their way of saying, yeah, look at this. We are biodynamic, but we're not going to use the word. So, so there you go. But that's what we are enjoying tonight. Our, our What I'm enjoying tonight is a biodynamic, organic, gluten-free, sustainably farmed, Chilean, Organic 2018 Pinot Noir. Well, yeah. Uh, Mike led led right into that, and so I had to tell about that. I remember. Oh, it's it's good though. It's uh, it's one that is for the price uh, at Publix today is twelve ninety nine normally uh, for the wine, and they have a buy one get one. For that price, and so therefore, uh, for twelve ninety nine, we got two of them. So it was broke down to like six fifty each, which is like, ooh, wow, what a deal, what a deal. And uh, they uh, are all over the place too. So organic Pinot Noir, another sip. That's nice. Not a whole lot of acid or anything. So, well, 
since I've already started to talk about stuff, I guess Mike is already doing his tweeting and everything else. If you don't follow him on tweet, you know Mike tweets this show all the time. If you are not following him, you can do so because he's always, and that way if you're out or something like that, not listening to the show, you can always find out things that's going on because he's busy tweeting throughout the show. Taking notes and sending tweets, yes. There you go. That's what he does and on the whole show. And if I happen to see something that I'm not familiar with, Mike will look it up and tell us about it and all that. He's he's does he doesn't just sit back in the background there listening to me. He he actually he's quite busy there. So <laughs> yeah, he keeps himself busy. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. So if you if you're not following him on Twitter though, you can do so because. I don't know what's what, what's your what's the Twitter address for this? Yeah, uh, this one is uh, all about wine DTR. So it's uh, similar to the website. Just uh, go to twitter.com forward slash all about wine BTR dot com or BTR all about wine BTR. There you go, not the dot com. Just uh, all okay. about wine BTR on Twitter. Yeah, follow us. There you go. Simple as that. And follow us on that. Pass it on. In fact, uh, it, it just responds, you know, quite often from people out there you know, who have retweeted and stuff like that. So cool. Um, and also, if you want to hear more of Mike's voice, listen to his radio program every Thursday night from ten to midnight Eastern time on Sky Blue Radio. And so, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're I don't know if people are listening, but they have the opportunity. Uh, another, yeah, I mean, really. Yeah. Tasters Guild's 32nd Annual International Wine Judging is coming up. And uh, um, Michigan, yeah, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it's award recognition of the Taste Guild's 32nd Annual International Wine Dressing is an earned distinction that becomes a valuable marketing tool. Uh, if you did not receive the entry forms, you can go to tasterskill.com and ask for them. If you are a wine or something, if you're a home winemaker, I think they have a category for that too, which is always cool about some of these shows. They do have categories for home winemakers. Entry deadline is about a month away. Uh, May the 15th. So uh, that's that's coming up. I'm sure there will be more information as we get closer because they're pretty good about keeping people informed about that. Another quick reminder, the Wine Spectator Grand Tour is on April 27th at the Mirage in Las Vegas, May the 2nd at Navy Pier in Chicago, and May 10th at Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami. Uh, tickets starting at $200, go to grandtour.winespectator.com, and you can get more information there. That's a cool event. That really is a cool event. If you're around any of those cities or something during those dates, you know, try to get into it because it's well worth the money. Uh, go to that at least once and say, hey, I've been to it. I got it in an email. I have to share the, not the whole information, but I have to share it. One of our listeners sent me an email and uh, uh, if I can find it again here. 
because I just had it up and it's gone now. Uh, oh, there it is. This is one of the listeners after last week's program emailed and said that uh, all about wine and said that they listened to the show, enjoyed enjoyed the show, and enjoyed the uh, comments about sugars and stuff and wine and what to look for in sugars and wine. And so, uh, well, if I can find it, I said if I can find it, and I found it, and I'm clicking on the wrong things. Uh, but that's not what I want. But it's uh, from a Jan uh, Falkender Salisbury, and uh, she said that uh, the explanations on glucose and fructose and all that was uh, was excellent. She enjoyed that. But she said that she travels a lot, and friends and stuff, and I guess family, husbands maybe, travel a lot and visit wineries in Iowa, Nebraska, Missouri, Kansas, Arkansas, that area there. And it sounds to me like she's located in basically that area that I grew up in, Kansas City, because of the the region that she said there. So, uh, Dan, if you're listening, when you visit those wineries, there's lots of them there. But go to catchwine.com, C-A-T-C-H-W-I-N-E, catchwine.com. And it will list all the wineries that are in that area. It might miss some of the brand new ones, and it might tell you about some that have been closed. But still, that's a good way to catch all the wineries in an area and good way to, you can contact them first. You can email if you have email and find out if they're open still and all. But there's a lot of smaller wineries that you don't find if you don't look for them, uh, those small dinky ones. But Catch Wine tends to list just about all of them. It's a good site. I use it quite often for for the show here and when I travel. So be sure to check out all those different wineries in those areas there. I found some excellent ones, absolutely excellent ones all around that area. And thank you for your email. I appreciate it, and thanks for listening to the show. Okay. Uh, What's coming up this week? Well, besides Easter and tomorrow being Good Friday, our Passover begins tomorrow on Good Friday. Today, National Animal Crackers Day. We know that. I told you that last week. So if you haven't had an Animal Crackers Day yet, grab yourself an Animal Cracker. Tomorrow, I guess say Easter, uh, our uh, Passover begins tomorrow, and as does Good Friday. We did a program. We talked to a Jewish rabbi uh, a few years ago that told us what Passover meant, what it was all about, and everything, and the kosher wines and all that good stuff. So that was a fun program. Tomorrow, National Rice Ball Day. You know, rice cakes and rice balls on it. Ooh. And it's also National Hot Cross Bun Day. Saturday, National Pineapple Upside Down Cake Day. Oh, I haven't had a pineapple upside down cake in 100 years. That, that sounds good. But that's Saturday. Sunday, Easter. And surprisingly so, Sunday is not National Glazed Ham Day because that was last Monday. And it is not National Baked Ham Day with pineapples because that was last Tuesday. 
but Sunday is National Tropic Covered Cashews Day. Hmm. Interesting that they don't have a ham day on, on Easter. But Easter does float, so I shouldn't say that. It's not a holiday that pops up every year on the 21st of April. It is a floating holiday, so uh, you, I guess you can't just call it a ham day every year because it will decide to leave itself. Tuesday, National Jelly Bean Day. And all sorts of combinations of jelly beans to create the weird palate taste and all that. Tuesday, National Cherry Cheesecake Day. And while you're at it, National Picnic Day. Which, by the way, would be a good chance to take yourself some canned wine with you or some wine in a little pitcher pack or any number of ways instead of glass so you won't have to worry about getting in trouble from having glass wherever you are having your picnic. So National Picnic Day on Tuesday with National Cherry Cheesecake Day. Wednesday, National Pigs in a Blanket Day. I like those little pigs in a blanket. Those are good. Now, not the little weenies wrapped, but the actual pigs, not the weenies are the small ones. The pigs in the blanket are big ones. And have yourself this Pinot Noir here. This organic Pinot Noir I'm having tonight would go great with pigs in a blanket because it would be just strong enough to hold up against those hot dogs and and uh, bread. So there's an idea. National Cotilla Day is next Thursday, Crotella, C-R-O-T-I-L-L-A. Crotella is a cross between a croissant and a tortilla. So I guess it's not Crotella, I guess it's Crotilla. National Crotilla Day uh, between a croissant and a tortilla. Hmm, never heard of it. But there's a lot of stuff I haven't heard of. And also, National Zucchini Bread Day next Thursday. So there you go. That's what's coming up this week. Find a wine to match with it. And enjoy Easter and Passover for all the people out there who are Jewish. And the week coming ahead. All right. Let's see what we got here now. We've got a few things to talk about tonight. And... uh, let me pull them up here and find them on my my list. Uh, well, no. Let me do. Okay. I'm. Uh, is this what I want? Yeah, I think. Okay, here we go. This is the page I want. Um. in a name. We have talked about AVAs. We've talked about AVAs a lot. If you're listening to the program, hopefully you know what an AVA is. If you're new to the program, an AVA is American Viticultural Area, uh, similar to the designations they have in countries over in Europe um, and 
France and Germany and Italy, Spain all have their designations. The United States, American Viticulture Area, an AVA is much looser in the rules and regulations. Uh, the areas in France, uh, the Chianti area, for example, is very strict on the rules, as is Bordeaux and Burgundy. Quite a bit looser here in the States, but still something that is recognizable, something that sets it aside from another area. AVAs can be within AVAs. There's California is an AVA, not really, but loosely it's, a, it's an area. Um, areas within California, you've got Napa, and you've got areas within Napa that are AVAs and all that. So these are, uh, this is the way they're all certified by TTB, Tobacco and Trade Bureau, and you have to go through a period of submitting to them that you are a unique growing area, and then they put it before the public, and if you have a reason why they shouldn't be, you can vote on it and all that other stuff. So it's it's, it's a process, but it's still, it's our version of what they're doing. Uh, because of the little bit of prestige to it, uh, there's so many producers out there. Uh, so to stay relevant, winemakers are trained to the government trying to get themselves recognized, trying to get themselves noted a little bit more so than just, you know, we are an area. They uh, are lining up to get the regions officially recognized. So to do that, they have to prove that they are extraordinarily complicated and time-consuming science-based means that the wine they produce is utterly unique or distinct or something that you're not going to find somewhere else. And so this is the goal. Now, consumers climbing for the Petaluma Pinot Noirs for their concentrated, fully ripened elegance, uh, they just seek out the Napa Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Sauvignon for their dense, rich fruit flavors. Official wine regions become the uh, the crib sheets, if you will, for the knowledgeable customers, uh, consumers who are looking for a particular region, a small official region, Bordeaux, Provence, Piedmont, Mendoza. These are all small areas that are noted because of their well, the, the uniqueness. So establishing a new reason, uh, a region tends to validate your years of work and, and the love you poured into the region and trying to get people to recognize you as much as other areas are recognized and as much as you want to be recognized. But the point being is that the market is solely is already so full with clever labels and distinctive grape varieties and a distinct terror becomes increasingly sought after if people recognize it and understand it. And number of wineries worldwide is just it's unbelievable. It's not tracked. There's no 
central recording base for how many wineries there are worldwide. Uh, so there, you really can't tell how many there are and what they produce or anything like that. But in the United States alone, there are a total of 9,654 wineries. Whoa. And then, All right, am I? No, I'm, I tend to be all right now. Sounds good. And I'm yeah. still on the air, I guess. Oh. Well, I don't know. I think it was something, a yeah. little, little burp <laughs> with Skype there, and it just, oh, boy, it just was right in the middle of what I was saying there, and it just it popped in, and I was <laughs> echoing in my ear and all that. So, so oh, well. Yep. All right. Uh, that's something else that Mike does, too. He cuts in and edits bad pieces like that. So if you're not listening to this live, then, hey, you're never going to know this is happening. So, you know. Uh, so, so, as I said, in the United States alone, there are 9,654 wineries, an increase of 50% since 2009. In Australia, there are an estimated 2,468 wineries. Wow. The European Union grows an estimated 45% of the world's vines on 3.2 million hectares as of 2015, the most recent estimate. And many thousands of wineries are bottling wine from that number of vineyards. But it's it's not having any effect on, uh, you know, creation of new restrictions in terms of grapes used, uh, yields, vinification standards. The regions can also create micro-segments uh, where it becomes too difficult to master the vast number of wine regions of the world. Uh, so in the U.S., we have uh, not dialed into the small geographic regions like they have in Europe, but we still do uh, focus on micro-level uh, wine regions. So in the United States alone, there are currently 23 petitions to establish new American viticulture areas, and these petitions are setting before the TTB right now. There are already 242 approved AVAs in the country, with California having 139 of them. Wow, when you think 139 AVAs, American Viticulture Areas, it's still not as crazy as they do some places in Europe, though. But to get to the point of officially being recognized by the TTB, the regions had to already be accepted as perfected in accordance with Part 9 of TTB regulations, which, according to the petitioners, is about as much fun as getting a root canal. So uh, while disco dancing on top of your unsigned divorce decree, that's you know pretty vivid picture there. It's not easy to petition for an AVA, but a lot of them are doing it. The process and the payoff are similar, though. In Italy, there are currently 386 DOC regions, and DOC is equivalent to the American AVAs, which means uh, Dominion di Originale Controllata, which I destroyed that Italian there. In Europe, the process is lengthy and difficult, and it starts at a regional level and then goes to a national one and is finally approved by the European Commission, which, because of the European Union, makes it even that much more difficult. Uh, 
the cost is not reported on that, but besides the actual cost, it's thousands of man hours to put everything together and continue to lobby for and everything. But the results involved in the creation of AVA, some people are thrilled with the results and some are less so. They have said, those who have established an AVN in the United States, they've paid anywhere from twenty dollars to $25,000 to get the research done, to get the petitions going, to get everything taken care of, and then you wait several years to get final approval. Wow. You know, you just it, it's, it's staggering when you start looking at it. Some AVAs, Some AVAs are enormous, like the Mississippi Valley AVA, and it is uh, it stretches all up and down the Mississippi River. And then some of them are very, very small, just you know, hundred some odd acres. One of the newest ones is the Van Duzer Corridor. Uh, the process the process began in 2011. And the results proved that they had completely different weather patterns and uh, which had an impact on the grapes. So therefore, they were able to prove that that was worth it. Uh, the bottom line, there are nine brands in the Van Duzer Corridor and 18 commercial vineyards. And because of that, now they have their own specific AVA. There are four additional AVAs in the TTB pipeline for, for the Willamette. And this is where this is. It's in Oregon, the Willamette Valley. Laurelwood District in the Shahalem Mountain, Mount Pisgah uh, in Polk County, Tulleton Hills and Lower Long Tom in Benton and Lane County. So these are all AVAs that are waiting to be approved. Another one, Mount uh, Pishka was uh, what I just mentioned there. It's uh, It has been approved. The uh, process started in 2016, and it was just recently approved. It's uh, within the Willamette Valley. Petaluma Gap, there's another one. The process began in 2014 and was finally approved in December 7, 2017. Malibu Coast is another. It was started in 2010 and it was approved in 2013. This is 46 miles long and 8 miles wide with 198 acres planted along the California's Malibu Coast. Dry Creek Valley. This is uh, submitted in... Well, that's nice. I've been telling you this particular one doesn't tell you what it is. But it was improved in, oh, no wonder, 1993, 9,000 acres. Another one, uh, Grand Valley and West Elk submitted in 90, are approved in 91 and 2000, respectively, uh, in Colorado. But the thing is, are there too many? Are there too many AVAs? Does it really, to spend out anywhere from twenty to $25,000 to get yourself an AVA. And the newest one now is, is Petaluma. This is the one 
I saw another article saying, are people ready to, and it's coming up on the labels now, Petaluma AVA. It's already popping up on labels. You can see where it says Petaluma. And is it, is it worth it? Is, and, and I continuously question spending this much money and fighting to get yourself an AVA when people aren't aware of it. If you put this money into advertising your region, advertising your winery and stuff, I would almost think it would be a better return on your investment than trying to get an AVA because people don't know. The people who do know AVAs, which I think is a very small percentage, are the ones that are going to be buying your wine most of the time unless you're outrageously priced and people shop by ABA and stuff. But most of the time, I don't think it justifies the cost. You're not going to get any real return on your investment. How long is it going to take to be able to get a return of $25,000? And are you going to be able to raise your price on your wine because you are now an AVA, because you are now Petaluma AVA, because you say Petaluma on there, are people going, oh, wow, look at this. This wine is really so much better now. I'll pay an extra $5. No, you won't. Don't. I'm, yes, I'm editorializing a little bit here. I'm editorializing simply because people don't know what AVAs are. This is where the education needs to be taken care of. I try to do it as much as I can. If you've ever been into the winery, I used to talk about AVAs all the time. I've been in other wineries, and I don't recall anywhere of people talking about AVAs. When I interview wineries, I always ask if they are in an AVA. It's it's something that we should promote more here in this country. I, I really think it is something that's important because you have the equivalents in European countries all over, and we have the system here, but it is not nearly as published or publicized or cheered as they are in Europe. So are we getting flooded with the AVAs? I don't know. I I don't think it's a matter of being flooded with AVAs. I think more than anything, we are just not promoting them. People aren't familiar with them, so therefore we are not promoting them. And so we can have ourselves a million AVAs, but people still don't know what they are. So, I, and, you know, and I say this as most of the time at the winery, whenever I've had a large group of people, and I did this quite often, I'd be doing a tasting for a lot of people on different events we would have there and all that. There'd be 35, 40 people in the room, and I'd be going through a tasting, and I would stop and ask, how many people here know what an AVA is? And they would guess all sorts of weird stuff. Nobody said American Viticulture Area, and nobody would raise their hands if they, that they knew. I, it was, I, I was always amazed how few people actually knew what an AVA was. So... Are there too many? Maybe. I don't think so. 242 in the United States already approved. They're looking at adding another 23 that's in the works right now through the TTV. So 
we'll be looking at uh, 265 total before too long here in the year or so. And there's others that are coming on and trying to get themselves established as an AVA. Let's let people know what an AVA is. I think that's it. If you you listen to this show, you know what an AVA is. I'm always talking about it. Tell people. Tell your friends. Let everybody know. Let's, let's spread the word. Let's start it here with All About Wine and spread the word. And then maybe in the future, one of these AVAs will send us an email saying, well, thanks, All About Wine, because you let people know what an AVA is. So, but... AVAs. Uh, I, I'm in this. <laughs> this I guarantee you will not be the only time I get on my soapbox about AVAs. I have done so before, and I guarantee you I will probably do so again. So, uh, let's see. Where's another one I want to talk about? Let's. Hmm. Well, that's not there. Uh, let me talk about. It. Oh, here's a good. One. This is something I wanted to wanted to talk to you about too. The true cost in a bottle of wine. How much does a bottle of wine cost? Is there really a difference between cheap and expensive wine? And is more expensive wine better? Okay. Figure this out. Let's take a look at the cost to make a bottle of wine. And that's really the key to it here. Let's begin with how much do the grapes cost? Now, this is going into a bottle of wine. And this is uh, California Grape Crush from uh, California in, uh, let's see, 2017. This is average cost. How much do the grapes in a bottle of wine cost? Cabernet Sauvignon averages between $1.29 for low average up to $4.48 for a high average. Merlot, low $1.27, high $2.61. Cabernet Franc, $1.74 to $5.16. Pinot Noir. 164 up to 407. Melbeck, 165 up to 384. Zimadol, 134 up to 302. Chardonnay, 141 up to 257. Sauvignon Blanc, 172 to 228. And sparkling wines average 152 at the low end up to 332 at the high end. Now, this is how much it costs for grapes in the bottle. This isn't any other, you know, by the ton or anything. This is average price for grapes in the bottle. Let me take a sip of wine here. All right. So, cost of wine grapes. Grapes are one of the several costs that go into producing a bottle of wine. So to put the real numbers behind this cost, you have to look at the cost of grapes. Now, this is 2017 California Grape Crush Report. $5 for the actual wine part gives you one pretty decent quality grapes. There is a substantial 
variation between different grape varieties. Merlot actually is, is a pretty good value. Napa, by far, is the most expensive place to buy wine, wine grapes. Napa Cabernet Sauvignon costs an average of $12.34 per bottle. Okay, now, that's it, to begin with right there, you're not, not going to find too many Napa wines, Cabernet Sauvignons, that are gonna, you can gonna pick up for 3 or $4. Most of them are going to be more just because of the cost of the grapes coming from Napa. Some California producers spend as little as $0.49 cents a bottle for grapes from the inland valleys of California. All right, where you know, the... Uh, Temecula Valley is a little bit warmer. The uh, uh, just the inland wineries uh, alone tend to be warmer, and so therefore the production and stuff, and you can pick up grapes a lot cheaper there. Of course, of course, of course, grapes are just one aspect of the cost of a bottle of wine. There are other factors. Oak. For example, this is something that can vary a lot. Most white wine, not so much, but the red wines is you oak them. A barrel, oak barrel costs anywhere from $600 to $2,400. And that is really the range for oak barrels. Uh, a good French oak barrels can run you $2,400 a barrel. And uh, so per bottle, the oak added to a bottle of wine is going to run 2 to $5, low end being 2 obviously, up to $5 per bottle per wine. Now, the cost of oak, oak barrels range in price, like I said, from 600 to 2400 depending on the type of oak and the quality level and what the toasting is, and even the uh, cooperage, which is where they make oaks, even the cooperage can... Uh, vary on their cost because of quality cooperage and stuff. That means you can expect to bump the cost up per bottle by $2 and up uh, if the wine uses oak. Uh, it's possible to do it cheaper if you don't use oak barrels. Now, there are all sorts of alternatives. There's oak chips and oak dust and oak logs and oak planks and oak this and oak that and all sorts of different ways you can do it that is not actual oak barrels and these other methods are cheaper and they will get you oak there's also liquid oak out there for those who uh, want to do it on fly and i guarantee you you are not going to tell the difference between liquid oak and actual oak it is that good but in case you don't already know oak is commonly used for red wines and you'll find the aging uh, used for a few white wines like Chardonnays and and white Rojos. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc is also oaked every once in a while. While oak barrels are used over and over, up to three years, sometimes four years, but not too often, the strongest oak flavors uh, compounds come from new barrels. This is where you get the vanilla, the clove, the spice and stuff. This is new. Also, it imparts some tannins. Um, into the new oak one part tannins and depends on how much toast they do onto the barrels too. Barrels are toasted and so therefore it will give you uh, cinnamon and some toastiness to it. 
And that's what you smell, too, when you pick it up. Say, oh, yes, I smell toast. It's the oak. Packaging. This is something else that goes into it. How much does it cost to package it? Now, uh, anywhere from $4 per bottle up to $5.85 per bottle for packaging. And where do these costs come from? Bottles. Bottles can cost anywhere from $0.15 cents up to $2 a piece. Actually, and even more, depending on what size the winery, smaller wineries can end up paying more than $2 a piece. Uh, it depends on how much quantity they get. There is major discounts in quality. When you're paying $0.15 cents a bottle, you're buying pallets and pallets and pallets of bottles at a time. So, therefore, the cost will go down. But if you're a small winery and you're buying a lot less than a certain amount, then the price goes up. Uh, so when you buy from real small wineries, you're going to put a little bit more into the cost of bottles. But $2 is his high end. This is, And it's not because of particularly top quality bottles. And this article here says top quality two bottles. It varies because of the winery and shipping costs and stuff too. Now this is something else that they're not talking about on this that I think they should, and maybe they do a little bit later here before I start telling you about it. Uh, yeah, they do a little bit, so I'll talk about that a little bit when I come down and go through that. Then the cork. The cork can, and cork and capsule, the capsules are the, the PVC. It's actually PVC on top of most of these capsules. There are 10 you can put tin on it, which is going to cost you a little more. But the, the cork and the capsule can range anywhere from $0.10 cents up to $1.85, depending on the quality of the cork. And if you're using a foil capsule, it's going to cost you a little bit more. Stelvin closures or screw cap is going to be cheaper than at the average. Uh, you can put that on a lot of them. That does save money. And they got the machines that do that, just like they do uh, the corks and capsules. So that's a good way to save it. But these are costs in a bottle, anywhere from $0.40 cents up to five eighty-five. <coughs> Excuse me. So packaging, presentation, very important. You realize how important it is because people buy from the bottle. They buy from what it looks like. They buy from the label. They buy from all this stuff. It's not just what's inside, but it's also what it looks like and how fancy it is or what the bottle is and all that. So these are all different things that go into packaging. The punt, some of the things about packaging, the punt, the hole in the bottom, the indentation, I should say, that divot in the bottom of the wine bottle, it doesn't really matter if it's there or not. It uh, You can find bottles with a deep punt. You can find them that... Uh, has no punch at all, it makes no difference. Punch do cost a little bit more. So if you find one of the punch, I've had people come in and tell me, is it true, or ask me, is it true that the deeper the punt, the better the wine? And I would always respond with, if that were the case, then my punch would be halfway up the bottle. No, it makes no difference. It's just a matter of manufacturing. If you want a big punt, you can put a big punt in it. If you want a small one, you can put a small one. 
if you don't want one, you don't get one. It, the punt in the bottle did have a purpose at one time. Sediment used to settle around the punt. It was easier to separate sediment, but anymore, it doesn't serve a purpose. It doesn't mean anything one way or the other. And it is a little bit cheaper to get a bottle without a punt. Screw caps. Cork or Trinity since 1960s. They work. And they're more consistent than natural corks to a point. And you can't make a blank statement saying that they are better all the way around. They're not. Uh, they're finding that screw caps do have and create some problems. But that's another method of packaging. Low shoulders versus high shoulders. These are the bottles. You look at a bottle and you can see if the shoulder's way up high before it starts curving down or if it's real low down and you have a real long neck. Uh, the burgundy bottles are the it bottles these days. These are the ones that fit most wine racks or stack on top of each other well. And it's the, you know, the thing now. You can get bottles with long necks. You can get bottles with short necks. The bottles I was buying were called Burgundy bottles. Um, they had a code to it and such and such and such, Burgundy. Uh, I got, I switched over and it was getting the Bordeaux bottle uh, simply because they were a little bit cheaper a case as opposed to the Burgundy. But basically, they don't make a difference. Collectors don't like the Burgundy bottles because they're just a pain to try to stack and take care of and all that stuff. So that's... Uh, another cost of packaging here. Heavy bottles. And this is what I was going to mention earlier. Some bottles are so heavy that they make up 60% of the weight of the unit. Not counting the wine inside. The weight isn't bad until you realize the extra fuel cost to transport these bottles. This is a big thing. Transportation. Companies around the country that make bottles, that get bottles and all that. Uh, can be cheap. I was getting bottles from California for a while, and they were inexpensive. They were really you know, good price. I was getting, you know, 300 cases and 350 cases at a time, and I was getting a good price. But then I had to ship them across the country. So shipping costs had to be factored into all this and shipping costs started to add on cost to each bottle. Here I can get this bottle, buying it from them in California for $1.10 a piece. But after I've shipped it across the country, I've added another buck or more to each bottle. So I'm spending $1.25 for each or $2.25 for each bottle as opposed to $1.10 because of shipping. I started to look and found a local company out of Tampa that I could get bottles. That was great, and it lowered my cost substantially. And then <laughs> about six months before we had to close, I found another company that was even cheaper than them, and I was all excited, and I was going to go with them and all that. But then, well, because of the doctor's orders, we had to close the winery, and uh, I had to cancel my order with from them, which was too bad. I wish I'd come them years ago. But shipping costs makes a big difference. 
Glass color. Clear glass doesn't protect the wine from light strike. Green glass doesn't do that much better. All right. Brown glass is more effective for UV protector than either the green or the clear. But brown glass hasn't caught on yet. People see brown and they think something's wrong with it. Chances of UV light damage to wines are pretty low anyway, so I think that's probably one of the reasons. Brown glass is affordable. It's not going to be that much more expensive, but it is an alternative. Packing costs, the increased spending on bottles might be better treated like a built-in marketing cost. It's going to be there, and it's going to be what you're going to find, and there's not much that can be done about it. And cheap versus expensive wine. Let's go with a Merlot grape, $2.61 for what's in the bottle. American oak, which is affordable, $2 to age that Merlot per bottle. Packaging, $0.40 per bottle for the cork capsule bottle and labels, you're looking at approximately $5.02 a bottle. Therefore, you can sell these for $7 to $15 and make yourself a profit. On the other hand, let's look at the higher end of it. Cabernet Franc grapes, $5.16 on average into the bottle. Uh, fancy French oak, $5 cost built into the bottle and packaging more expensive grapes and fancy and all that. And when you start seeing bottles too with all this hand printed stuff on it and these very fancy labels, labels are going to cost you more money and stuff like that. You're not paying for the wine, you're paying for packaging. So keep that in mind. So Prestige packaging for the Cabernet Franc, $5.85. You're looking at 1601 total cost. Now, these costs do not include labor, facilities expenses, state and federal taxes. So that's all added on to it. And since these are costs that wineries don't control as far as taxes go and facility expenses and stuff like this. Labor costs, this has to be added on to it, obviously, too. So it turns out little things like grape prices, choice of oak, packaging costs add up. These are things that are going to be there. Two-buck chuck or three-buck chuck now. Uh, The reason they can do it so cheap is because they buy lots of bottles, lots of bottles, and so that lowers their cost tremendously. They buy, and I think a lot of that's on screw cap. They have a big machine that they run it through that, saves them money uh, for labor costs, and they ship it out. So let's add it up. Average price for wine grapes from the higher quality growing zones of California, uh, and uh, again, you don't include the expenses, the, the built-in costs. Using Malo grapes with American oak and value packaging, the cost was around $5. Increased prices of the Cabernet Franc, fancy French oak barrels, and the packaging jumps up by over three times, uh, around $16 a bottle. 
So is cheap wine better than expensive? Well, it, you know, it, it depends. It depends on your desire to drink out of the box. If you, and that's not talking about box box, but it's just, you know, the old term. So that's going to be one of the factors there if if you want to do it. But there's something else that you need to consider too and the three-tier system and taxes. And this is something else that is going to add cost to your bottle of wine. Taxes in the three-tier system add cost. Now, the three-tier system we've talked about before, and I'm going to talk about a little bit here since I mentioned it. Producers, grape growers, and wineries, then send it to the importers or wholesalers. This is tier two, the importers and distributors. And then they send it to the retailers, and then we buy it. Now, you start out with the grape growers and wineries. There's $5 there. Importers and distributors, you're doubling that price up to $10 because they need to transport it from the winery to the stores and put it in the shelves and do all this stuff. So that's going to be their cost. And then once it gets in the store, they're not going to sell it for $5 because they've got their cost. So the retail and restaurants are going to mark it up again. So there is more cost built into a bottle of wine. So, all these factors come into play when you get it. That's why it's so nice to visit a winery because you are really eliminating a lot of the costs uh, despite what they're saying. The three-tier system is a pain. I'm not a fan of the three-tier system. I think it's ridiculous myself, but it's implemented. Although these lawsuits that are going before the Supreme Court is starting to punch a hole in some detritio system, which, in my opinion, is a good thing. Let's take our bulk wine, our, our $7 our seven cheap wine that we were just talking about earlier. Uh, winery charges $2 when they ship it out. The markup is 5 so it's going to be another $7 added on to it, so that $5 bottle of wine is now $12. Quality wine. Winery charges 15 or 16 for it. Markup from $25, you're looking at $40 for this wine that if you were able to buy it directly from the winery, it was going to cost you 16 And then, of course, we... <coughs> Excuse me. Of course, you have built-in costs, but this, you know, you're following me. I'm sure you are. Retail. Three times markup, restaurants, or retail, uh, not three times markup. It's it's uh, about uh, 25% markup. Restaurants, three times markup. So all of these things are going to add to your cost of wine. It's This keeps on going and going. So because of that winery direct, imported direct, makes a difference. This is why there is such a battle on direct shipping. Because the three-tier system is 
bypass. All these distributors out there, if I make a bottle of wine and I'm able to ship it to anybody in this country, I have eliminated shipping costs, I've eliminated distributor costs, I've eliminated retail costs, I've eliminated all this stuff. I've got my wine directly from the winery at a good price, the wine I want, and I don't have to pay all these extra people to touch that bottle. And this is why the three-tier system is such a, uh, well, travesty, I think. I, but, again, that's that's my opinion. They should be able to ship everywhere. Check out the website, freethegrapes.org, and they talk about three-tier system. They talk about shipping to all this stuff. Interesting website. And if you are in a state that can receive and ship to all other states, EA, good for you. If you are not, get over your congressman, tell them that you want it because you really are paying way too much for wine but not having it shipped directly to you. So, so there we go. I think I'm done for the night. Wow. Um, that was, uh, yeah, I didn't realize all that went into uh, the cost of uh, a wine bottle. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's like there's something yeah, kind of adds much up about, Yeah, and the labels, too. This is something that that article didn't go into is the cost of labels. Mm-hmm. Labels can be expensive. I I used to shop around for labels. When, I, uh, when the winery first opened, we found a great company that did labels at a decent price. And... It was it was great, and they did some very nice labels for us and all that. And they were in Washington State, and we had these labels shipped across the country. Now, a, a label itself, you think, oh, that's not expensive to ship. But when you start talking rolls and rolls of labels with 2,500 labels on a roll, and you need 15 rolls, this gets expensive, your shipping costs, and so your cost per label jumps from from two cents or three cents a label up to six cents a label just because of shipping costs. This starts to get very expensive. And uh, you have your setup fees and you have your you know cutting fees, your dye fees, all this stuff goes into to the original setup labels. I switch companies three times on labels. I was trying to get closer and closer. Uh, found a company in Alabama which did a great job and they gave me a good price and they it was uh, just wonderful labels but I said this is the size I want and this is what I want and they said we don't have a die that size. If you're locked on that size it's going to cost you more money because we don't have a standard die. So I had to change the size of my labels. And if you start looking at the original labels on the bottles when we opened, as opposed to the ones by the time we closed, the size had shifted quite a bit to fit standard dies for printers. Uh, it, it was I, I learned stuff doing that. It was amazing. Then I finally found a label company out of uh, no, not Sarasota. It's closer than that, wasn't it? You know, maybe it was Sarasota. I found one of Sarasota just just south of us. An engineer just told me that, there. and they were close. No, it wasn't Sarasota. It was it was closer. It was in the Tampa area. Brandon or Brandon. 
Yeah, Brandon or Bradenton, because the girl who took the order delivered the labels to me, so there was zero shipping costs, and uh, they they were just a pinch more expensive than some of them I found, but zero shipping costs, which swayed me right there. That was that was a big difference, and so you know your initial cost to get the labels designed and. People change labels all the time. I mean, you, you go out and you buy a label and you'll see a different year on the label, and that's a different printing run, and you'll see different things on these are all different printing runs. And so labels can get expensive, and you got to judge how many you need because you don't want to have a whole room full of labels that say 2005 or 1999 or something as a vintage date that you're never ever going to use again. Mm-hmm. So you got to judge and see how many you want, and you know hope that you don't run short because if you do, it's going to take another run of, of printing. And you don't want a whole bunch over, so that's an art in itself to be sure you know what you're doing on. It's just it, it's uh, and it's another cost. It's another built-in cost that can add another five cents to every bottle and uh wow you know and and so that is, is something else there so yeah it's uh it, these are things you don't think about when you go out and pick yourself up a bottle of wine these these are costs and all that so yeah so so a lot a lot into it um yes don't yes, don't yes. ever never realized it was all you know all those those uh, items uh, kind of added into it, and uh, now you explained it all, and it makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and, and you know, you you and most people buy wines between seven and fifteen dollars. So mm-hmm. half of that cost is in the bottle of wine itself. The rest of it is for distribution and profit on each step of the way and all that. If you can buy it directly from the winery, a bottle of wine for $15, if you buy it directly from the winery, if you can get direct shipping, you can probably get it for like $8 a bottle. But so many winery or so many states don't allow you to ship because of distribution and stuff like that. So, yeah, let's hope it changes. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, we will close out the show for uh, this week. It is uh, April the 18th, and we will return April the 25th, which uh, just happens to be next Thursday. Hey, <laughs> you that worked out well. Join All us. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's not that's that every is. Thursday. Uh, join us uh Join us then at, uh, and I'm going to guess that we start at uh, 7 p.m. next week as well. So uh, join us at 7 p.m. next week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll start again. T- yeah, uh, every week since uh, 2009. <laughs> I will be. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We'll um, we'll see you all next week. Thanks for tuning in and um, either live or on the archives. Happy Passover for everyone, starting tomorrow for those of the Jewish faith, and Happy Easter mm-hmm. Sunday. You all be safe out there. If you're going to go to somebody's house for Easter Sunday, then be safe. So. Yes. Yep. And we'll see you all next week. Thanks again. Have a good one. See you next week. Thank you. Thank you. 
This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio with your host, Ron. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archive shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine. It's okay on this.